Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Jeremy Gucci, CEO of Trend Hunter and the author of Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. Great to have you on the show, Jeremy. How are you? Oh, so good to be on this show. And yeah, thanks for the invite. And you know, I kind of love your content, love your topic, and I'm happy to be part of your community's voice today. That's perfect. I, I love the energy. I love the enthusiasm. I've had the the pleasure of actually hearing you speak at different events. And I always know you come in with a ton of energy and a ton of enthusiasm. And it shows me that you're really excited about the topic of of understanding the future and understanding trends. You know, I uh, personally am driven by the passion to help people realize the actual path they could be on. So uh, Trend Hunter itself is this big consulting firm now. We've got almost 100 people who help all the world's top brands predict the future. But, you know, actually, for me, it really just roots down to individual people and especially entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs at heart, because I was a guy that spent kind of decades looking for my business idea and my little dirty secret is that everything I've done, everything Trend Hunter has become, uh, is actually just the result of my relentless search for trying to find my own idea and then helping other people build their tools to find their ideas uh, along the way. And what happened in my little life story to kind of give my intro is that I couldn't find my idea. So back in 2005, let's say, when I was running innovation for a bank, I would come home every night and work very hard on coding up a little website called Trend Hunter where people from around the world could share business ideas. But it was before YouTube, it was before Facebook, and this was a place for people searching for inspiration, you know, where they could go and contribute and, and communicate and collaborate. And pretty soon we had more traffic than every newspaper on the planet, billions of views, and uh, we really grew a community of people trying to figure out the ideas right for them. And now as a company, we've sort of pivoted and, and our business has become about culture and, and helping companies figure out how to create cultures of innovation and find their ideas. But then on the website, it's all free tools and just trying to make free things possible for the people that aren't a big brand who, who just want to try and find their big idea. Now, it's it's interesting that you you remark about this time of starting Trend Hunter and and where it was, you know, a side hustle, something that you were doing as you were working a full-time job. But when we talk about this before, there were a lot of befores in that. This was before YouTube. This was before certain digital tools that we now kind of take for granted. So there there is a certain element of timing in terms of you starting Trend Hunter where a lot of elements seem to come together at the same time. Yeah, it was 15 years ago. And, you know, I was teaching myself to code and things like WordPress weren't any good. And I needed to have, you know, galleries and interactive parts and 
portfolios for users. And really, crowdsourcing wasn't even a thing back then. It was, you know, maybe Wikipedia was still brand new and it was early. But I was just trying to figure out a place for people to share ideas. I really didn't think it would become something, to be honest with you. I wanted Trend Hunter to be a place for ideas to be shared. And I hoped a Trend Hunter in Europe or a Trend Hunter in Asia or a Trend Hunter in South America would submit a little idea that I could turn into my business. And I didn't expect it would take off. And then when it did, what happened that was so unique is we were so far ahead of all the newspapers that all of our first clients were the CEOs of almost every media brand. So I ended up with 32 CEOs and billionaires as clients that were all in media and, you know, pick 32 media brands. It's basically everyone. It doesn't matter which one you pick. I probably did something helping them think about how to adapt. And then I had published a book called Exploiting Chaos, and it was right around when the financial crisis collapsed. So then for these same characters, I became the chaos guy. And that was my career break. And I started working through the financial crisis with all of these different brands in difficult times. And then I think now what was interesting is that this year I republished Exploiting Chaos, but I made version two, double-sided book, Create the Future. And it was all about how you innovate through chaos and change. And I didn't expect a global pandemic to change how all of us were doing our thing, but I did learn a lot of lessons in the past, a decade ago, decade and a half ago, that I think are really useful for people now in terms of how chaos is, is hitting our world. And chaos, is it's intimidating. Now, I should also point out COVID-19, still working from home, is, is a phase I would term crisis, and it's tough to really figure out your business model for the future, or your career path right now. But crisis emerges. And once we, we can get out again, we get into chaos. And during chaos, chaos creates opportunity. Chaos seems intimidating, but actually the greatest companies in the world were founded as an example during periods of economic recession. Disney, CNN, Hyatt, Apple, Microsoft, Fortune Magazine, Uber, Airbnb, Burger King. I could give you a hundred more companies founded during periods of global economic collapse because these periods of chaos are intimidating to us, but the deck gets reshuffled, the rules change, what people want evolves, and suddenly these periods actually become the greatest periods of opportunity for individuals, for companies, for people just trying to figure out what their real purpose is in life. So as much as it's a weird time period, one should be inspired by the creation that's happened in periods like this in the past. And I could go on and on, so I'll just pause and turn it back to you, Philip, because I don't want to go too far, but chaos creates opportunity. I, I think there's a lot of really strong points in there, and I'm anxious to get to one of them, which is this idea of the past, because how the past... The past is, I think, often overlooked in future conversations, right? Because future conversations are always about looking forward. And one of the things I've offered in my work is that we have many examples and ideas and tools that are built into the past, that are coming from the past. We just need to reapply them to our future. So I want to give you an opportunity to, to maybe expand on that idea of some elements of the, of the past, some tools you've used that are applicable now, particularly during pandemic. And then I just want to plant the seed to explore a little bit more of the crisis and chaos point. So let's unpack the past a little bit. Sure. So let's go back several hundred years. 
and then seven, like a hundred years, and then we'll bring it to now. So uh, the Renaissance period is really interesting to take a look at because at one point in time, everything happened. We had Leonardo da Vinci, the roof of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, advances in science, introduction of the scientific method, the invention of bookkeeping, the Gutenberg Press, the democratization of knowledge, the introduction of books with the Gutenberg Press to the middle class. There was a lot of things that happened. But what was weird is that it all happened in one period, the Renaissance period. How did it all happen at one point in time? Well, you might be very interested to think about the fact that the Renaissance period actually was the result of the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague killed 250 million people. It wiped out one third of the planet. That'd be the same as billions of people dying today. It, it was terrible. It was really, really bad. And it's not that COVID isn't bad. COVID's been really destructive, but it's not a third of the planet. Like they, there is a difference. And what happened in the bubonic plague was that societal structures in the past and how things were done and the way people had no mobility, social mobility, all of that collapsed. People saw so much death. They started thinking about what was important to them in life. They started pushing to actually do what they could in their time on the planet. And as a result, almost every field experienced a flourishing of opportunity. Now let's advance hundreds of years to 1929, the Great Depression. I could give you a lot of great examples of iconic companies founded in the Great Depression, but the one that I, I covered in Create the Future that always stood out for me, that I've always found so motivationally interesting, was Fortune Magazine. Fortune Magazine was started three months after the Wall Street crash of 1929. Fortune Magazine was a luxury publication priced at $1 per issue, which actually made it the same price as a sweater in 1929. It was more expensive by far than any magazine ever. And yet, during the Great Depression, they ended up with half a million subscribers and they made $7 million of modern day profit as a luxury business publication. That doesn't make any sense. But actually, and here's where it starts tying together, what happened is that Fortune was simply providing an answer to a new consumer need. When the 1929 crash hit, people started rethinking about what was important to them. And one of the big curiosities was how did we end up in this situation? And the economy was for the first time a corporate world and Fortune was offering a glimpse into the boardrooms of what was happening in those corporate you know, decision-making rooms that led us to where we are. And put differently, Fortune was just an answer to a new consumer need. And consistently, what you'll find is that a period of crisis leads to chaos. And in these periods, what happens is that consumer needs evolve by the minute. And yet, a lot of people who had been successful, big brands, they hold on to the past, even though everything around is changing. And so... The deck gets reshuffled, the market leaders change, new entrepreneurs, new ideas suddenly start to rise, and those who are willing to fail and experiment and try to discover through these times, those who are motivated by a positive belief that there's something else out there that they could figure out, end up emerging uh, in a wonderful way. So that's why I like studying the past, and when I bring it 
to now, there's still so much fear because we're in it. And compared to mo the lives most of us have led, if you are uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, this is the most crazy thing you've experienced in your life, COVID-19. And if you're listening to this podcast after, it's already happened, but it doesn't matter. This moment of odd trauma, insignificance relative to the size of the planet, fear of what could happen to us, that's life-changing in a lot of ways, but it also changes how people think about the world and it, and it will cause many companies to, to reinvent a new opportunity to be created. And that actually is, leads me very nicely into the crisis versus chaos conversation because, and this is not have to specifically talk to COVID and pandemic. I think it's, a, as you said, an applicable example, whether it's the Great Depression or all these different periods That's in that sure. when these crises hit, some of the effects of these crises we're seeing exacerbate existing trends. You know, I've, one of the things I've, I've spent a lot of time even today talking about is, you know, cracks become fissured. So some of the systemic challenges that we have as a society, whether it's North America, you know, you're in Canada right now, I'm in the United States, so I can't just say America broadly, but trends we're seeing in North America and South America around the world can become exacerbated in these moments of crisis, right? Which leads to then further chaos. We have choices in these moments. And I'm wondering in these moments, how do we ensure that um, opportunity, even when we're seeing populations adversely affected at different rates, how do we see people being able to take advantage of these opportunities when communities are being faced with with different types of challenges. You know, it, it goes, and we're talking about the future, it kind of goes to the, the future's already here, but it's not evenly distributed, right? William Gibson, very famous quote. And I think we're living some of that right now through the example of COVID. What's so interesting about what you said there is really uh, grappling on this idea that we know new opportunity will get created. And yet, when you think of the disparity between different groups, it doesn't matter if I hear the word opportunity, if I'm someone disadvantaged right now, the COVID-19 was a very polarizing thing in terms of, you know, billionaires making more money while others on the front line experience unemployment and difficulty. Like, uh, it really, it's sort of quite a pronounced example. But what I will say about the human psychology that I find interesting is that we have a trap and it, uh, it's sort of what I study. I study the traps that cause us to stay on the path that we're on. It's a psychology term called path dependency and it comes from the 1950s. And you, you know, in your work with anthropology, I'm sure you've heard of this, but I study path dependency as it relates to innovation, creativity, and you finding your next level. And the idea would be that there's so much potential out there for you technically, so many paths that you could be on. But what happens is we get stuck into a specific path. We sort of think that, and in Create the Future, actually walk through seven different traps that, that explain. But I'll tell you one that relates nicely to now, which is just uh, linear thinking. And it's this idea that the world was already changing. If we were talking six months ago, this interview might be about artificial intelligence, you know, ro robotics, 3D printing, uh, sustainability. And, and yet now it's 
oh my gosh, we're caught in a crisis and are we going to be here forever? And will we ever get, but it's sort of an interesting example in our linear thinking, because you know what? COVID-19 ends. It doesn't go on forever. It will be one of the most significant events that we remember in our entire lives. But the world returns to normal. So there's a disparity right now that's very difficult and it's not, you can't trivialize it. It's really difficult right now to wrap your head around the fact that things change. But that's one of the human traps that keeps us caught in the same path is thinking you're meant to be in that path. You're stuck in that path and things aren't going to change, but they will change. COVID-19 will pass. We will enter our technology-enabled future that we were excited about six months ago talking about. And the other point, Philip, that you brought up is that a lot of the, I'll use the term megatrends, but a lot of megatrends, the cracks become fissures, the things we already knew were happening, they accelerate. And now in every category, people trying to figure stuff out, a lot of people aren't grappling to the path they were on. They're now starting to test new paths and see what other opportunities they have. And that's why, whether or not it's the bubonic plague or the Great Depression or the 1991 you know, real estate crash or the 2008 market crash from housing, what happens is in these time periods, the deck gets reshuffled. So many people get caught grap grappling towards the path that they're on, but those others who experiment a little bit, who test other things, end up finding themselves in a brand new, wonderful reality. So the way I, I kind of term it is I say we're path dependent. That's phase one. We go through it, which was the last nine years. We go through a crisis, which doesn't last forever, but it feels like it does. Then we enter chaos, which could be a recession. It's six to 12, six to 18 months. But in that chaotic period, especially when you're past crisis in the chaotic period, you can reinvent. And then after that, the fourth phase I call the recharting, which is that you can rechart your path. And sure enough, we'll get caught being path dependent again. But right now in crisis and in chaos, you're able to find a new path, figure it out, fail, stumble. There's no social embarrassment, no difficulty from failing right now. Everybody's failing. So right now you can try something and you can emerge stronger. The linear, the linear thinking is, a, is an interesting point because in my work, when I think about future design and, and culture, there's a lot of scenario planning. So in essence, I'm doing like a lot of decision tree modeling, you know, trying to determine that, okay, the future doesn't necessarily look like one particular outcome. It could look like a series of interconnected outcomes. And so how do you factor, as you think about linear thinking, kind of linear paths in, in, in your future thinking? And how do you break through those, those kind of models, whether it's in the book or, or working with, with clients? Sure. Yeah. It's really interesting that you brought up scenario planning because it's one of the very interesting ways to think about breaking from your path and the alternate paths that you could be on. And I'll give you a neat uh, case study that I put in the in Create the Future of when scenario planning basically started. So and then and, and it's neat to then relate to your own world and it talks about how we stick to the path. So in the 90s, actually the 70s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, there was a job that many people had of predicting the oil price. But the oil price back then was always $20. It was $20 in the 60s, $20 in the 70s, $20 in the 80s. 
And if you wanted to keep your job and your job was forecasting the price, what's the price next year? I guess it's $20. It's always $20. So you can't lose your job if it's $20 and it's probably always $20. But there's a guy named Pierre Wack who worked at Royal Dutch Shell. And he said, you know, I don't know. I think it's going to be, it's going to be $20. That's what everybody says. But when I look at the Middle East, I think that they should form a cartel. And if I was them, I would form a cartel. And if the Middle East formed a cartel, then the oil price would forever fluctuate and change. So I think the price is $20, like everybody else does. But we should make a scenario for what happens if it completely changes. And sure enough, a year later, OPEC was formed. The price of oil went from 20 eventually to $100. And when that happened, nobody else was prepared. And Royal Dutch Shell went from number seven in the world to number one most profitable and number two largest in revenue. And they made that wild leap because they're the only ones that put in a little bit of an action plan for what could be. So when you think about scenario planning and your pathways and what you could do in the future, what's interesting is you're not actually predicting what you think would happen. You're preparing for the potential of what could be. And if one of those ideas takes hold, wow, you could really discover something new. And it could be having a big plan like they did, but it could also be, oh, I think my career might evolve. I should take a couple extra courses in what my passion is. Oh, I'm really interested in this industry. Maybe I should do some experimentation. Or as a company, oh, I don't think that this is exactly a product we'd be good at, but all of our customers already buy it. So why don't we try? And in a period of crisis and chaos, you can try anything. And that's the cool takeaway about path dependency in crisis, chaos, and recharging. I want to get into the the framework of the book. And I, I went through it over the, the past couple of weeks, I guess, when I got my copy. And I think when people pick up the book, what struck me when I when I opened it and, and started going through it was its design, right? Like I think it's it's designed in a very intentional way. And as much as I want to get into the the, think, the thinking behind it, the future framework, which will be the next question. I do want to leave some space to to talk about literally the design of the book, like how it's laid out. I don't want to give it away for the reader, but <laughs> you know, it flips around. It's two in one. It's it's a very active book um, in the sense that there's exercises, there's things that one can do. Um, kind of walk me through like why you designed it to look and flow in the way that it does. Sure. Uh, well, the book is a two-sided double book, and it's my life work. One side is Create the Future, and the other side is the Innovation Handbook. And the Innovation Handbook is actually a rewritten, updated version of my 2008 bestseller called Exploiting Chaos. And it shares the same vision, which is that it's half pictures and charts and tables and graphs. And every page has a big, bold, provocative sentence that might inspire you. And every little section has a story or two that's very interesting, but then ends with the takeaways and the workshop questions and all that kind of stuff. And 
when I wrote that first book 12 years ago, that's kind of the better answer to your question. When I wrote the first book in 2008, I wanted something that was imagery because I just feel like that's the way that people's learning habits have migrated over time. We're conditioned to faster, shorter takeaways. That's the web. That's what it's done to us. And what's happened with long form books is they're one topic that spans 300 pages. And I feel like I get it 50 or 60 pages in. So what I wanted to do is make something you can flip through, be excited by, and kind of cover a lot more topics. When I had done it, it actually won a number of business awards back in 2008, like business book awards, all that stuff, but it didn't hit the New York Times list. And eventually half a million people had gotten it, but didn't hit those lists because they judge it and they say, oh, it's not a novel. It's not a big piece of text, whatever. So then when I wrote my last, my previous book, Better and Faster, I thought, oh, I want to try and get the New York Times list. So I should go all text and I should be more traditional. And I did a traditional book, but I didn't like writing it as much. And it hit the New York Times list. Yay. But guess what? It's not what I liked doing. It's not the book I would really want to read. What I would want to read is a book that's imagery and visual. So when it came time for this one, I went back to my original roots and I thought, ah, I'm not trying to hit any lists. I'm trying to put my life work together to make the most useful, manual, and exciting little textbook in a way for people just to be entertained as they figure out how to innovate through chaos. So that was the approach. And it was kind of my, you know, a journey of life. So you kind of need to know the beginning, the middle to get to where the end was. But I really wanted to make something that was just visual and inspiring that a person might keep out and reread when they need to be uplifted or, or figure out how to navigate tough times. So now that's perfect setup for a little bit more of the book. The, you, you discussed this idea of a future framework. It's, it's what I would call maybe the core conceit of the create the future portion of the book it has methods it has processes so kind of walk me through that that future framework and and how it's actionable um in in your in your overall thesis so the idea of the framework for understanding the future is is really just trying to break down where the world's headed how you might predict uh some of the next moves but also just that in a time of chaos change and accelerating world, the more that you use frameworks to break down where your future might head, the more likely you're going to be successful. And I think that with innovation, the weird misnomer is that people sort of think innovation is a eureka moment. One person comes up with the iPhone and it's invented. It's not. It's just a better BlackBerry. That's a shot. But it's funny to think about the fact that most breakthrough ideas are usually just small. They're a little idea that's a twist or a turn on something that happened. And innovation isn't just for a relentless creative Michelangelo sitting in some mad science lab somewhere. It's just the word for creativity for all of us. And what happens is that we go to school, we get a degree, and we our degrees in something, but it's probably not in creativity or innovation. That's just not something that people specialize in. And yet there are so many tactics and methods and frameworks that you can use that are pretty much guaranteed to make you more likely to be successful. And so uh, my life's work is trying to provide those tactics. I think we all get that we want innovation to happen. We all understand that the future moving faster, we're there. And so my life's work is trying to help people just have those simple little tactics to actually make this stuff happen. And, you know, kind of going through that, talking about that rate of change 
that's come up quite a bit. And we've seen that in an example of how you talked about what your time was like in 2005. We're in 2020 and that 15 years, we've seen an incredible amount of new platforms, new processes, new ways of thinking about the world. Now we're looking out 2020 into another X number of examples. Like, do you see that rate of change staying the same or increasing? Sure. I, you know, I heard a quote, the world has never moved as fast as it's moving now. And yet it will never move as slowly as it is moving now. Kind of profound to think about. And if you rewind back to the 1950s, the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company was 75 years, which kind of meant forever. And we didn't even say Fortune 500 companies. We we used to say in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, we said blue chip companies. And people wanted a job at a blue chip company because that meant your long-term future was predictable. But the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 now has fallen from 75 years down to 15. And with COVID-19, it's probably fallen to eight. And if you look at the list of the Fortune 500 companies from the year 2000, which isn't forever ago, that's actually kind of recent, 53% of those companies are gone or displaced. That's astounding. So we've already experienced a dramatic change and experience of what disruption's like. And yet things like artificial intelligence, globalization are just beginning. So over the next five years, and, and actually a lot of my work, I should back up, but, but we work with like a, a Disney, Samsung, Starbucks, Coke, Microsoft, NASA, trying to help them predict the stages of change and these intervals of change so they can more exactly figure out what happens to them in the next two, three, five years. And what we find is that human beings are pretty good at knowing what's going to happen next year, but we're terrible at what is going to happen three to five years out because we don't grasp grasp this concept that um, innovation around us is accelerating. So the answer is it is accelerating. I could prove it in a dozen ways if we really want to sit down and go through more examples on it. But um, if you already kind of get that concept or you, you believe in it anyways, then the point would be we need to acknowledge that our brains, our evolution <laughs> has not really lined us up to, to experience accelerating change. We think in a linear way. And, and COVID-19 is actually kind of an example in that. It's like we're all standing on the sidelines and the Titanic is about to hit shore. And we're like, oh, look at that. It's going faster. Oh, it's in China. Oh, it's really hitting a lot of areas. Wow, look at Europe. Oh, Italy's really getting hit hard. Oh, what? It's in America? Wait, why is it doing this? And it's like, it's there. It's there in front of us the whole time. And all those charts there, the math, like, you know, there's a certain difficulty, not, not, not that we could predict it. For everyone, it's been a pretty big surprise. But boy, at a certain point, those numbers really start making sense. And yet it still takes so much time for us to internalize. And then we get to the deep of it and we think now is forever. Nope. Now is also not forever. It'll go away and we'll move back to where we were. We have a very difficult time understanding exponential change. In the same way that, you know, we can cite those whose ideas were introduced into the world and then not taken it seriously. There's a, a litany of, of um, household names that we could think of that were dismissed in their in their advocacy for their ideas as compared to others. And 
you, you mentioned again with COVID, like people kind of see this thing, but for whatever reason, they don't respond until it's it's there. Is there ways of, of fighting through that in the sense that, you know, the warning signs were all there for COVID and in the same way that there were business warning signs along the line for any number of different things, whether it's you think about photography, home computing, there are trends that people can see. Mobility is is one of those things. How do we kind of fight through that malaise? And is it all psychological? There are also vested interest in keeping things the same, right? That's why industries have lobbies, right? Like they don't they don't spend that money because it doesn't work, right? So keeping in mind that part of it is psychological, but some part of it is institutional in a sense that people are fighting for their interest. One of the things we need to do is make room for competing alternatives, alternatives to our way of thinking. And that could be a gambling fund of money or time that's almost betting against yourself. That could be like a stock portfolio approach to creativity where you have a portion of ideas that are higher risk. But the idea is to assume that you're incorrect, which is tough to do. And I'll give you some neat examples of how people have done this. But at the BBC, as an example, British Broadcasting Corporation, the the, the whole business, effectively government-like business, is that they're the main telecom in Britain. And they come up with TV show ideas. And in the 90s, people stopped tuning in to their TV show ideas. But they had a good, refined process for screening, and they knew the formulas of what worked, and they had experts, and they had the brightest people in the world, and they did lots of surveys, and yet they were losing market share. So the CEO and CFO got fired, and the new CEO and CFO got brought in to come up with new TV show ideas, bring them back to fame. And they knew they couldn't change all these best practices, these great methods that were figured out. So they kept everything as it was, and they put in a gambling fund. And then ideas that failed the normal screening process could still technically qualify for gambling fund money. And one of the ideas that failed the screening process was The Office, which ends up becoming BBC's biggest hit, an American export as well, one of the greatest you know ideas of their entire history. And it failed the normal screening process, but it got gambling fund money. And there's different examples in all sorts of industries, but the general concept is to say, we get caught on a path, there's probably a different path. So what are you doing to challenge your assumptions to find that path? And I haven't given into it yet, but one of the core parts of our thesis, the big things at Trend Hunter that we study is the idea of the hunter versus the farmer. And it's that a million years ago, we were all hunters. And that means you and I have hunter instincts. And we're always able to figure out and adapt and hunt new ideas technically. But 10,000 years ago, humans became farmers. And when we did, we, while we flourished as populations, but we could stay put, we could predict for the winter. And so we started putting in rules, policies, procedures, structures, government, to protect whatever led to last year's harvest. And what's happened is that after 10,000 years of evolution, our brain is pre-wired to repeat and optimize whatever led to last year's harvest. So what I study would be the hunter instincts and the, and the farmer instincts that kind of compete in all of us to try and figure out what's impacting you. 
And if you want, in my website, we have free tools. It's absolutely free. We don't charge anything for it because it's just part of our research. You can go to Trend Hunter and go to our assessment. But here's the quick answer to it. When you become successful, you become, the three traps are repetitive and you become protective and you become complacent at anything you're successful at. We want to keep repeating what we did. We want to protect it so it doesn't go away. And we're kind of complacent. We coast a little bit. And that's what keeps us bound to the path. Yet our hunter instincts, which kick in anytime we try something new, is that we're curious, we're insatiable, and we're willing to destroy because we have nothing to lose. And what happens in a good time is we become path dependent because of the farmer traps. But when we're in a period of chaos like we're in now, well, we are a little bit more curious. We are more insatiable because we're hungry. We need to find that next meal. And we're willing to destroy. I don't know if I care about my job, my company, my thing I was doing, my product. I'm suddenly a little bit more open than I was. So that's the hunter versus the farmer. It takes place in all of us. And it's a very interesting sort of answer to the question you're getting at, which is sort of an underlying way. Why do we get caught in one trap and not realize that there's something else for us? And how do we kind of gamble our way to that other path? It's interesting because the chaos theme, this idea of convergence is coming up a lot in these the farmer, the hunter, these sort of converging ideas. I think about now in a business term, we talk a lot about specialist versus generalist. That has come up quite a bit among different guests. And as we kind of go through crisis and enter chaos, is there one of those personality traits or one of those specialities, I guess I'm giving it away, specialist versus generalist in terms of who's going to come out to best tackle this new chaos? I think that if someone looked at the first level of that question, you might be tempted to say a generalist in a new field of technology or a specialist who can adapt. But I might have a separate view because of my study of the hunter and farmer, because the hunter instinct is what I think you really want, which is curiosity, insatiability, and the willingness to destroy or try something new. And what we've found is we've studied, I think now about 35,000 people, and many are in giant organizations and, and they're generalists or specialists, and many are in small little firms. But what we found is a little bit different. It doesn't matter. Almost everywhere has a mix of hunter versus farmer, and you have it too. And I think that we all have both sides, but my answer would be that the people who emerge are those who are better able to channel their hunter instinct, which is often more about adapting, giving up what has happened in the past. And you might be a generalist, you might be a specialist, but I kind of feel like specialist or generalist is a product of what I chose to do in school or the job I'm in. And so that's why I kind of hesitate to answer with that because I might be one or the other based on what I chose. But I think all of us still have a hunter instinct in us. So I think it's being open to that part and getting comfortable with the discomfort of chaos in order to adapt. And that's, I think, a motivating way to look at it because it's also saying you're uncomfortable now. Yeah, me too. You feel unstable and that things are really bad? Yeah, me too. But guess what? These times work out for people. And the way you think you're caught forever, you're not. We know that. We know that's how our brain gets caught. So it's it's kind of like an optimism, but, but it's a little bit different because it's saying, it's okay. Be happy with the fact that right now things 
can feel terrible because there's ways out of this that, that we will evolve and, and these little periods are not forever. And it's interesting. I love the, the hunter example. And I'm thinking about patterns a little bit because I don't hunt. I'm a city kid. So I don't physically hunt anything, but um, it's a sandwiches and bodegas and things like that. But um, there are some overlap in the idea of hunter and the gatherer or the farmer, because hunters do follow patterns and norms, right? They are ways of tracking the prey and tools that one uses to, you know, successfully bring them down that are sort of trying new methods. But once you figure out the best way to kill a buffalo, I'm assuming you probably use that same methodology again. I just pick buffalo. I don't know. It could be any animal. I don't know. <laughs> so is there ways of like kind of combining those or, or attributes of one versus another? Because there is some sort of pattern recognition that exists both in husbandry, the the raising of livestock and vegetables and things like that, fruit, and hunting as well. Like there are some kind of symbiotic nature to the care and complexity of those activities. Can we also make some leaps of that into business as well? Or, or what do you think about, about that? So this is a neat relation back to our concept of crisis versus chaos. In crisis, you can't do much unless you're a mask maker or a gun dealer or you make hand sanitizer. But in chaos, yes, chaos is actually predictable. And we tend to overlook that. But the way that I like to think about chaos is that when something big happens, it's like a splash in water. And that splash creates ripples of opportunity. And in the book, In Create the Future, or at trendhunter.com, you can learn our six patterns of opportunity that happen always during chaos. There are convergence, divergence, redirection, cyclicality, and I don't want to give it all away, but, but I'll say it more simply you can think about that splash in water. It creates things that are predictable. So let's take COVID-19. We'd actually, I'm going to tell you some ideas of what will happen after. And I'm not just saying it. We studied this in 2008, before, during, after. And when a period of recession or difficulty happens, there were some things that poked out. And just one example was potentialism. The idea that you will rethink about your full potential in life and the importance of what you're doing, which is kind of what we've been talking about today. But getting more specifically, some of the things we learned and studied and surveyed in, in 2008, 9, 10 would be that there will be, and there was, a surge in people starting their hobby businesses and crafts and their side hustle. We talked about that in 2010. Yeah, it happened because people started thinking about whether or not they were doing the job that mattered to them. Another potentialism takeaway was a return to the kitchen. Here you are cooking for yourself more, having all these family meals. And sure, part of you wants to go back to a restaurant or experience a meal out. But guess what? There's going to be a lot of people that keep that Sunday dinner and that return to the kitchen tradition alive. Because even when we go back to whatever we're doing, we'll think about how important those family items were. The point is that there's a lot of things that you can actually predict and there's tools and methods. We've got them free at trendhunter.com slash pro if you want to learn a little bit more. Or in the book, I explain them. But the point is that chaos is actually predictable. And that's how Fortune Magazine was able to identify a new consumer need and, and, and how so many others have come out of recessions and time periods of change stronger because consumer needs evolve. Those that stick to the path stay stuck on the old path, but the others can use their hunting instincts and look for clues and build on those clues to really identify where the world is headed. 
Yeah, there's so much to, to unpack in the book and on the website and through the events and talks that, that Trent Hunter does. So there's much more that we can cover that's impossible in the time that we have allotted. I want to leave time for our last two segments on the show. The first one is Off the Dome, where I just ask you a few questions. And the first thing that pops into the old head is, is what we're going to go with. So if you're ready, I'm ready for some Off the Dome questions. Off the dome, rapid fire. Let's do it. All right. So the first one is, what item will we be using in the future that few people know about or are thinking about? Mind reading and user interface that's not related to using your phone. And that sounds far-fetched, but I could already show you examples of thought-controlled robots, thought-controlled video games, a device from MIT that can read the inner voice in your head and actually do math and calculations and groceries and Google searches for you. So what's weird is that this stuff is actually much closer as much as that seems sci-fi and it works and it doesn't require something drilled into or implanted into your head. You can literally read someone's mind from a video game device that is just sitting adjacent to them. And I think that will mean you won't be crinking your neck and staring at your phone as much because interface will change. Right now it's your phone. It's moving away from that a little bit with Alexa and Google Home and voice, but it could also lead to mind reading and just different ways to get what you want from the internet and data without staring at the little piece of screen in your pocket. I'm very afraid of anyone reading my mind during the course of a day because my mind is all over the place, but I, I hear you. Second question is you guys have looked at a, a, obviously thousands and thousands of different trends and ideas over the course of Trend Hunter being in existence. Is there a favorite idea that you've seen over the years and a least favorite idea that you've seen over the years? So a two for one question. So we've studied half a million individual ideas, which are all sort of free on the site, but then we boil them up into the larger opportunities and we boil those up even more to the mega trends, which would be 18 of our favorites, but 50 that we're tracking that are the larger forces changing the world. So my favorite thing is going to be a mega trend. And my favorite mega trend is instant entrepreneurship. And that's our term for the fact that you could instantly become an entrepreneur today much more easily than you could a decade ago or two decades ago. So if my little niece, who's nine, decides she wants to start a business selling dinosaur figurines, she could outsource the design to Thingverse and a designer will get her something tomorrow. She could outsource her logo to 99designs.com and for 90 bucks, 100 designers would compete on a logo. She could set up a Wix website for free that would look beautiful, much more so than what I was trying to build 15 years ago, teaching myself to code. And... She could sell her product on Kickstarter before she knows how to make it. And maybe she could sell 100,000 or even a million of product before she even has it. That's amazing. You can instantly become an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur within a company. And that's my favorite trend to follow. So anything that enables a person to quickly turn ideas into a reality, that's my favorite. Now, your part two question, what's my least favorite? Wow. I usually... Focus so much on optimism. Okay, I'll tell you what it is. It's not a trend that I cite. The trend I would cite is the opposite, which is sustainability. And actually in Create the Future, 
I put sustainability as one of the six most important factors related to artificial intelligence, which no other AI book or person has ever said. And the reason why is because we've reached a point where capitalism moves too fast in some scenarios in a way that can destroy the planet. And, and I'll give you the example. You think about getting a mattress delivered, not going to a store. Cool. Casper. Nope. Casper is number three, but they had half a billion dollars, 300 million, 350 million of financing to spend on ads. But now there's 175 companies that are all making beds in a box that get delivered. 175 just years later, and Casper's the third, now there's 175. So pick a different idea. So there's too many, maybe. Pick a different idea. Bikes. Everyone, New York, New Jersey, Toronto, San Fran, Amsterdam, have the rideshare bicycles. But the concept became so popular that all of a sudden there was a mad rush, particularly among Chinese billionaires and billionaire investors. And people started making hundreds of thousands and millions of bike share bikes. And if you go look for bike share bike graveyard china look for that on google and you'll look at aerial pictures that look like they are lavender fields from space but actually there are millions and millions and millions and millions of bikes stacked 10 bikes high that will never ever be ridden ever they're brand new millions and millions and millions, 50 million bikes sitting there in fields because so many companies started competing so dozens of billionaires were competing to make millions of bikes to the point that it was useless. So the trend that I'm most worried about is that the instant entrepreneurship, let's say, or venture capital and private equity can become so fast that a good idea, whether it's mattresses or shareable bikes, can get so much extra competition in it that suddenly we're destroying our planet when we know we're trying to save our planet. So I think that there's a, a danger now in how rapidly we can ramp up to just create mass waste. I love that example because I, I did a lecture last year at Parsons New School Design on sustainability and future design and disposability. And I cited through a lot of pictures those same bike graveyards in China. They're striking images if, if one can find them. So I co-sign that as an important element thinking about the care of our planet. The third question is a future guide. You have to pick one of these people to be your, your guide for the future. It's going to be Doc Brown from Back to the Future or Sarah Connor from the Terminator movies. Which one's taking you on your trip? Oh, well, Sarah Connor takes me to a world where people are getting destroyed and it's an AI Terminator future that I'm far too intimidated with, uh, to be able to handle. And I got to try and figure out how to arm myself, equip myself. And it leads me to a very, like, difficult, violent attempt to figure out how to save the world. Whereas Doc and Back to the Future, I'm just having a little bit of fun. I'm altering the course of the universe. So I'm going to have to go with the Doc approach to that. And my last off the dome, we've all heard the song, Future's So Bright, You Gotta Wear Shades. What's your clothing choice for your future? The clothing choice for the future question has my fiance from the other room uh, already laughing, by the way, because she can only imagine what I'm going to pick. And today, you know, there's an audio call, but Philip's dialing me in in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. I'm currently working from home and I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt because you know what? 
why not cheer yourself up a little and pretend you're on a holiday and not actually in a position where things are difficult? So why don't we imagine a future where AI makes our lives better, we have more free time, and we're wearing a Hawaiian shirt, even though it's something we weren't expecting to have in our metropolitan wardrobe. There you go. Can't go wrong with the Hawaiian shirt, right? It's a party. You make the party where you can. That was awesome. I want to get us to the drop. So the drop is a intellectual morsel. It's just something that myself and my guests are going to share that we think will be good for our listeners. And I always give them literally no guidance. It's very open-ended. You can choose whatever you want. I have my drop and I'm, I'm rating for yours. So do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? So if the drop is the place to go next, then I suppose it seems like I'm shamelessly self-promoting if I say trendhunter.com, but I don't feel like it's so shameless because it's free. It's a community. Billions of views have happened through it from just a giant community of contributors all around the world sharing innovative ideas in every possible category. So if I didn't use the drop to say, you should go to trendhunter.com and try and discover your idea. I'd be doing a disservice to the hundreds of thousands of people contributing their ideas to that community. So it's not just me. It's a free tool. It's a place where you can get inspired. And if you need to contact me, all of my details, everything you can find easily at the community known as trendhunter.com. There you go. So that's a great drop. And and my drop is an um, informational series that's been running for about seven or eight weeks now. It it coincides with COVID-19 and the pandemic. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a renowned professor and thinker, she literally coined the term intersectionality in her work. Um, She's been producing um, what she calls Under the Black Light. It's a number of conversations and talks with scholars and thinkers. She, She does them every Wednesday night. It's available on YouTube, the series, so you can catch up with them. So highly recommend Kimberly Crenshaw's work in general, but her Under the Blacklight series has been outstanding over these past couple of weeks. So that's my drop. So Jeremy, this has been great. Really enjoyed this conversation. The enthusiasm has been more than present. I, I love the book. I love the design. I love the perspective that you shared. It's been a pleasure having you on the deep dive with me. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. And for all the listeners, never forget that chaos creates opportunity, and this is your time to create the future. Thanks so much, brother. Take care. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure having Jeremy Gucci join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.